I'm Ayla Ellison, and you're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. In today's episode, we explore the pioneering work being done in Alzheimer's research, discuss the latest breakthroughs, and dive into the ongoing efforts to combat this complex disease. For this week's episode, Fierce Biotech Senior Editor Annalee Armstrong sat down with Dr. Howard Fillett, an expert in the field of Alzheimer's research. He is the co-founder and chief science officer at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, an organization dedicated to accelerating the discovery of drugs to prevent, treat, and cure Alzheimer's disease. Their conversation took place about one month after Lakembi was granted full approval by the FDA. Here they are. Since Lakembi was granted full approval, five health systems have said that they're going to offer it. So things are moving really fast. This is obviously a huge deal for Alzheimer's research, but it seems to me to be the beginning of something bigger. So how does this moment in the drug development timeline feel to you after how everything we've been through in terms of the clinical challenges to get here? I've been involved in Alzheimer's research and care for almost 45 years. I can tell you when I went to medical school back in the early 70s that Alzheimer's disease was not in my textbooks, and I never heard the word, even though when I was an intern and a resident and a physician in training, I took care of, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of older people, and I'm sure many of them had Alzheimer's disease, but I never really heard the word until about 1980 when I was visiting a nursing home and the clinicians there started talking to me about Alzheimer's. And back in in 1980, we knew almost nothing about the disease. I remember when the paper came out from Glenner and Wong, which for the first time described the components of the senile plaques, which of the major protein being, being beta amyloid, and that was 1984. In my professional lifetime, we've gone from this being thought of as a senility as a normal part of aging and Alzheimer's as a very rare pre-senile dementia to a time when it's one of the most devastating and feared and and economically for society, very costly disease. So I've seen us go from really nothing to a time when we have the first approval for a disease-modifying drug in the history of the world, and actually the first approval in our field in almost 20 years So I think it's a very exciting time. I think this is the dawn of a new era. I think it proves that we can do rigorous and efficient and very targeted clinical trials. We have uh, a number of new biomarkers that are enabling this new uh, advances in in drug development. And I think this is just the beginning of a a very exciting and productive time in in our field. So let's start with the drugs that are going to follow Lakembi. We have Lily's Remturnitug and Donatumab. Of course, Donatumab is is coming pretty quickly. They've already filed for uh, approval for that one. So how important are those two therapies now that we already have one fully approved? Is is there still room for those two? Yeah, I I think it's good to have competing drugs. The Donatumab clinical trials were very innovative in using tau imaging to enroll patients who were not so mild that they had very little tauopathy on their tau PET imaging scans and not too much on their PET imaging scans to indicate that they were too far along. 
based on the biology and the biomarkers to benefit from treatment. So they did something very innovative by using tau imaging, which is a, another major advance in our field. And they also had stopping rules that when people were cleared of their beta amyloid based on their PET amyloid scan. So I think the Lilly trial also had stopping rules, which are important because it means that that patients have a goal of treatment, which is the elimination of the beta amyloid from the brain based on the PET amyloid scans, which are, again, major advances on our field. Having a positive PET amyloid scan was required to get into the trial. This is a new advance in our field that people actually have the target of the drug. So we could really ask the rigorous question around whether by removing beta amyloid from the brain, there's clinical benefit. So the stopping rule, be given the burden of the drug, which is infusions for donatumab once a month, and it looks like around 12 months or so, uh, depending on the patient, that amyloid is pretty much removed from the brain, that patients can stop therapy. And I did see, see some analyses to indicate that once therapy was stopped, that amyloid did begin to reaccumulate in the brain, but it took four years to get back to the point where the patient was prior to therapy. So that gives patients about a four-year window, if it turns out that way, uh, in which they won't need therapy. And it's similar to the way we do uh, cancer and chemotherapy. We treat patients and monitor them with biomarkers and then restart therapy when things uh, come out of remission and go into relapse. The once-a-month dosing of donatumab is a clinical advantage in terms of the burden of administration. But I also know that companies are looking at alternate routes of administration so that patients don't have to go to infusion centers and might be able to even get their injections at home, either subcutaneously or intramuscularly. I think that that'll be another, the next major advance will be the reformulation of these antibodies and a different route of administration that'll be less costly and less burdensome. So I want to talk about safety. I know that with these um, monoclonal antibodies, one of the concerns has been aria, this swelling in the brain and, and small brain bleeds. So I guess, can you speak to what the concerns have been when it comes to Lakembi and some of these other drugs? And I guess, how can the next generation of drugs improve on safety and lower the risks associated uh, with treatment? That's a great question. I can give some perspective on it. For one thing, I would say Alzheimer's, from surveys, we know that Alzheimer's is the most feared disease, and rightfully so, having taken care of thousands of people over the last 40 years or so. This is a horrible nightmare for patients and their families in many cases. So when we talk to patients about risks and benefits, the risks of ARIA are real. I would say 20% of people have some sort of symptoms from it, such as confusion and dizziness, maybe headache. But those those side effects are, are self-limited, and they're managed by serial MRIs of the brain over the first three months of treatment. So once we start seeing these side effects of ARIA-E, which stands for edema, and ARIA-H, which stands for hemorrhage, and often they go hand in hand, then we'd stop the treatment, let these lesions heal, and then restart treatment. There are what's called appropriate use guidelines out in the medical literature now that informs neurologists and other practitioners who'll be managing the leukemia and the related monoclonal antibodies as to the protocols to use 
in terms of safety monitoring using serial MRIs, and then guidelines for restarting the uh, infusions uh, once these uh, MRI lesions heal. But in people that are apolipoprotein E4 positive, which is a major risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and relates to this often the severity and the frequency of side effects, people that are homozygotes for ApoE4, in other words, they're ApoE4 slash 4, they've gotten a 4 allele from both parents, those people are particularly prone to the ARIA side effects. And current appropriate use guidelines would say that if you're ApoE double 4 and you're getting these ARIA side effects, that you would be discontinued from therapy. And people that are ApoE 3-4, for example, or 2-4, can restart therapy with careful monitoring. My own personal opinion is that given the devastation of the disease itself, there have been analyses of how much time is gained in a patient's life in terms of stable cognition. And the benefit seems to be somewhere between five and seven and maybe as much as nine months from these 18-month trials. So that's a pretty significant saving in terms of cognitive stability trying to describe to patients the benefit of these monoclonal antibodies to beta amyloid and translating the results from the clinical trials into practice, I think these kinds of analytics that are relatively new to our field, where we're looking at time of benefit, the time that people have relative stability in their cognition. And I think it's very clinically meaningful to be able to say to someone, you know, if you take this drug, you'll get months of of benefit in, in a disease that robs people of everything that makes them human, including being able to recognize their grandchildren and that sort of thing. So I think, like any other serious illness, with particularly an an analogy to cancer, the risks risks are real, but they're manageable, and the benefits are real. And a, a fairly substantial proportion of people who take the drug will have a noticeable difference. You know, having stability over the course of six months to a year in this disease, or 18 months, is very significant in a disease that is a chronic, progressive, uh, uniformly fatal illness. So you recently wrote in an article for Stat News that in order for Lakembi and other anti-amyloid therapies to become the standard of care, we need more biomarkers and a better awareness and new novel diagnostics. So how do you envision Lakembi's approval impacting the diagnostics landscape in the coming years? Lakembi and denatamab are proof of concept that we can have biomarkers that show target engagement that can be used in clinical trials and can show there's a relationship between the engagement of the target and a clinical benefit in slowing the rate of decline. So there's a real proof of concept that, whereas before I think we thought of Alzheimer's as there's nothing you can do, and there's no hope, I think now we clearly have the infrastructure for these clinical trials. We clearly have the designs and domains of interesting biomarkers for these trials. We've proven that we're in a new era, as I said earlier. The thing is that these monoclonal antibodies to beta amyloid only slow the disease down by 30, 35%. What we wanna do is slow the disease down by 100% if we can. And so we're going to need new pathways based on the biology of aging. And I say that because 
far and away aging is the leading risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. What we're starting to do as a field is translate a tremendous amount of knowledge on the biology of aging into clinical development for Alzheimer's disease. So for example, a major component of aging biology is inflammation. Inflammation research in Alzheimer's has been underappreciated for many years, but it's finally being recognized and it represents one of the leading new pathways for drug development because, for example, at autopsy, we've learned that people can have beta amyloid in their brain But if they're not having a significant immune reaction to the beta amyloid and there's no inflammation, those patients don't seem to progress. So we know that although the beta amyloid is is an abnormal pathology, if it's not eliciting a significant inflammatory effect, it doesn't seem to relate to clinical progression. So there's major efforts across many different inflammatory targets. And some examples would be Elector and Denali, which are trying to stimulate the TREM2 receptor on microglia, the microglia being the major inflammatory cells in the brain. There's a sort of thread the needle issue here because on the one hand, the microglia are needed and beneficial to remove the plaques from the brain, particularly when the monoclonal antibodies are in place. The monoclonal antibodies bind the plaques and their FC receptor portion, the business end of those monoclonal antibodies, attract the microglia to come in and remove the plaques. That's a good role for the microglia. If the microglia get primed by the beta amyloid, then they're going to trigger an inflammatory response with the release of cytokines, which uh, when the microglia are overstimulated, that those that cytokine release becomes neurotoxic. So what we're trying to do is stimulate the microglia to be phagocytic, to recognize the monal antibodies, to remove the plaques without becoming highly inflammatory. And that's really the main challenge that we have right now in in addressing inflammation in the brain. We have TREM2 as a target. We have other inflammatory targets, cannabinoid receptor programs. For example, one of our one of the companies we've invested in is called Neurotherapia, trying to target the C- cannabinoid receptors in the brain that are inflammatory, and other approaches to inflammation in the brain. Elector and Denali, as I mentioned earlier, have programs to address inflammation, and there are many others. Inflammation is going to be a, a big pathway going forward and probably quite useful in working in combination with the monoclonal antibodies to beta amyloid to slow down the disease. I did want to ask you about the combination therapies. That's a really standard approach in oncology where we layer medicines together. So how can therapies like Glikembi be paired with others? Will it be these inflammatory drugs that are added on? Or are there maybe some anti-tau antibodies or vaccines that we also might add into the mix? There's um, actually seven or eight pathways that are being investigated here. I think autophagy is a really important pathway here because we know that in the aging brain, there's not just one misfolded protein that's toxic, namely the beta amyloid. And there's not just two misfolded proteins that are toxic, namely the beta amyloid and the tau, as you mentioned, but there's many. There's alpha-synuclein, about 40, 50% of patients with Alzheimer's disease have misfolded alpha-synuclein that appear in Lewy bodies. And in the extreme, this is recognized as Lewy body dementia, 
but even people with Lewy body dementia also have beta amyloid deposits in their brain. There's TDP43, which is another misfolded protein that's common in the aging brain. And I'm sure that there are many others. And so while this first step in trying to remove the misfolded proteins of beta amyloid, we need a more parsimonious approach to the management of misfolded proteins in the aging brain. And that's where we there's starting to be clinical programs to address this pathway called autophagy, which every cell in our body has as proteins become degraded within the cell, they need to be removed. And in a normal state, the process of removal of these garbage proteins by the garbage disposal system, and that's one way of describing what autophagy is, not only becomes overwhelmed by the number of misfolded proteins in the aged brain, but also the process itself begins to fail. And so there are programs now, which I think are very important out there, that are attempting to stimulate the autophagy pathway within cells to help manage the increasing number of misfolded proteins that occur in the aging brain and prevent their deposition into plaques or into tangles or into other pathologies that are associated with cognitive decline. Epigenetics plays an important role in the disease, and there are programs looking at various pathways in epigenetics. There's a vascular component to the disease that really isn't being addressed widely, but is just starting to. And uh, there's a company that we've invested in called Therini that has a very interesting program trying to reduce the amount of fibrin deposition in Alzheimer's disease, which actually seems to trigger the amyloid deposition in the brain and the inflammatory response. So that's really interesting. And then I won't go into all eight or nine of the pathways, but those are some of the prominent ones. But I think also if we can have agents that are neuroprotective, in other words, with aging, the neurons are, and other cells are suffering multiple mechanisms of injury. And if we had a neuroprotective agent, it would be a pathway where regardless of the form of, of injury, be it oxidative injury or failure of autophagy or whatever, by triggering and promoting the neuroprotective pathways in the cell, we might be able to enhance neuronal cell survival instead of triggering the process of apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, which neurons also can go through if they're not stimulated. So we have been invested in a company called Pharmatrophics out in California that is looking at this these neuroprotective pathways and is in phase two right now with a drug that promotes neuroprotection in the aging brain. And we're very excited about that. Uh, and there are other neuroprotection programs that we have seen involving pathways involving a protein called Clotho, which is also neuroprotective, and progranulin, which is also neuroprotective. That pathway is also being uh, explored as a parsimonious approach to the treatment of the disease. We're also seeing a, an interest now in astrocytes, which are very important cell types in, in the brain. They're supporting cells. They play an important role in, in the neurovascular unit, and they also promote inflammation. They also promote other parts of normal brain function. And in Alzheimer's, it's finally being recognized that these cells are contributing to abnormalities in the Alzheimer brain. And so targets on astrocytes are finally being identified. And we've seen a number of 
preclinical programs that will move into the clinic uh, in the coming couple of years, I think, uh, that will try to fix the astrocytic component of this disease, which has been highly unrecognized over these many decades. And I think it's a very exciting new approach to the treatment of the illness. There's also mitochondrial disorders that occur with the aging brain. And so there's energy failure in cells that leads to neurodegeneration and metabolic disturbances uh, with increased insulin resistance in the aging brain. And so there's currently clinical trials repurposing diabetes drugs, for example, uh, drugs like liraglutide, which was a program we supported at the Imperial College of London uh, back a few years ago, which led to a very big trial of semaglutide by Novo Nordisk, which is repurposing that drug, which was originally marketed for diabetes and now obesity, which is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, but using semaglutide directly to see if uh, it can slow down the neurodegeneration that would result from insulin resistance because brain cells are so acutely dependent on glucose for energy and any failure of energy utilization in the aging brain will lead to neuronal dysfunction and degeneration. We're also supporting the use of metformin, which is one of the most widely, if not the most widely, diabetes drug in the world. But it's also considered the leading anti-aging drug. And we're supporting a prevention trial of metformin along with lifestyle intervention and comorbidity management of diabetes and hypertension to see if we can develop a paradigm of prevention in aging people that's similar to the paradigm we have in heart disease, where we tell people to have healthy lifestyles, exercise, diet, don't smoke, et cetera, and then add a statin to, to their regimen to manage the major, bio, the major biological risk factor, which is high cholesterol. In our case, it would appear that metformin, uh, along with these lifestyle and comorbidity management strategies, could add a lot to preventing the symptoms of Alzheimer's, delaying the onset of symptoms. So a lot of the focus has been on these disease-modifying therapies. That's what ISI was trying to do with Lakembi and so on. Is there still room for therapies that maybe address some of the specific symptoms? Are those going to work into the combination approach? Yeah, we're seeing that a lot now, actually. If you look at the pathology, originally, back in the 1970s, Alzheimer's was discovered as a allergic disease, a disease of the nucleus basalis of Meinart, where the magnocellular neurons that are cholinergic are based, they project throughout the brain, and they're very important for memory and learning formation. Because Alzheimer's was originally thought of as a disease of memory and learning, and the cholinergic system was being damaged and devastated on pathology, the main initial focus on symptomatic agents was on acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and eventually led to the approval of, of these drugs in the mid-90s. They have some benefit, but it's modest. What we've learned over the ensuing decades is that this is not just a cholinergic disease. There's dopaminergic deficits. There's deficits in the noradrenergic system. There's deficits in the glutamatergic system, which is one of the most prevalent neurotransmitters in the brain. And so what we've been doing at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation is interrogating these pathways by using drugs for other diseases where the predominant neurochemical deficit is, for example, the dopaminergic system 
or the glutamatergic system. And so by repurposing, we've gotten some pretty interesting results. And I think ultimately for symptomatic treatment, it won't just be denepazil or drugs like it, rivastigmine and rasodine or galantamine, I should say, which are the three main cholinesterase inhibitors on the market. We also have a, a drug called memantine on the market, which is often used in combination, especially in moderate to severe patients. And that affects the neurochemical system of NMDA receptors, and again, is thought to be a symptomatic drug. So we already have on the market combination therapy for the symptoms of the disease. And I think that is just going to expand over time as we start to address the other neurochemical symptoms in the brain that um, contribute to symptoms and can be ameliorated by drugs that we actually already have for other diseases that can be repurposed for Alzheimer's or reformulated for Alzheimer's disease. So I think symptomatic treatment will also expand and grow over, again, the near term, I would say the next five years. All right. So just to wrap up, I always like to ask a question like this when I'm interviewing people who are in so heavily involved in Alzheimer's drug development. But now I ask it from a more hopeful position, given what's happening with Lakembi and, and the other therapies. What is your vision of Alzheimer's drug development 10 years from now? There was a study that showed that from the time of a major biological discovery to the ultimate development of a drug is about 30, 35 years. So cholesterol was discovered as a risk factor for heart disease in the 1950s. The first statins came to market in the 1980s. And in that sense, because Alzheimer's research didn't really start till about 1980, and it's 40-something years later, we started from zero in all respects. I, I basically don't think that we're really delayed. We just have this historical lag in the recognition that senility is not a normal part of aging, but a disease of old age characterized by Alzheimer's. That paper came out in 1970, was the year I started medical school. So I think that, for one thing, we're not so far behind uh, in terms of the time frame. It's just that we've been put into a different uh, era than cancer, where research started in like 1902. What's going to happen now is we have tens and tens of thousands of papers studying Alzheimer's from the last 40 years or so. And so now is the time to harvest all that knowledge into new drugs. And so I think it's really exciting now from my point of view. I remember when we started the foundation back in 1998, I did a survey of the American pharmaceutical and biotech industry, and I found that there were 1,600 biotechs and pharma companies in the United States. And at that time in 1998, only three of them had any kind of program in Alzheimer's disease. And frankly, two of them weren't really respectable. Today, we have hundreds of biotech companies with innovative programs that are involved in drug development for Alzheimer's. We have 140 drugs in clinical development today for Alzheimer's disease. That kind of portfolio for Alzheimer's didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. There was so little going on. This is harvest time now. We're going to harvest all the basic research on neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's disease neuropathology and neurochemistry and so on. We're starting to harvest all that information into new drugs. And we, because of Lukembi and because of denanumab and because of the new biomarkers that we have, there's confidence that we can actually 
test these drugs in clinical trials and get good answers because we have the biomarkers, we have the clinical trial designs down now, we know what the statistics look like, we know how to do proper enrollment so that our patients are really characteristically Alzheimer's disease. And I really am very excited about the coming five years because I do think we're gonna have new drugs on new targets that are gonna be used in combination therapy with the symptomatic agents and the monoclonal antibodies to beta amyloid. We're gonna start seeing these other pathways like inflammation and autophagy come into, I hope, our ability to treat people with multiple combination drugs through precision medicine. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at FierceBiotech.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.